you would stand for the reading of the word of God. This morning we're coming from Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 11 verses 1 through 6. And it reads, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Um, this is a, every day is a good day to worship the Lord, but this is a special time of year when we get to uh, really begin to look forward to celebrating the coming of Christ. And uh, it's just special to be here with you guys. And uh, I think it's a blessing that we should never take for granted. Um, in case you're not sure where you're at this morning, you're in Texarkana. And Texarkana is a part of Northeast Texas, and as Carl would tell you, a lot of people call this area like the pine curtain or the pine thicket. And uh, the reason is we grow a lot of pine trees, right? That's a big part of what we do in this area. It's a big part of our local economy. Um, we're, there's a, quite a few tree farmers in Northeast Texas. We have these industries like graphic packaging in Domtar that take those trees and they turn them into paper products and they go all throughout the world. And uh, there's a whole economy around that. There's people who farm the trees, there's people who cut the trees, there's people who deliver them to the mills, and then there's people who distribute those products out. And so it, it really generates billions of dollars just in this local area. And so if you live and work here, whether you know it or not, you benefit from it. The thing about the timber industry, as Carl will tell you, is that it's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's super slow. If you're going to invest in, like, growing trees, pine trees don't grow overnight. You know, they've kind of engineered them to grow a little faster, but it takes time. And so it's a slow, it's a long-term investment. And there's a lot of upfront cost in growing trees. First, you have to, like, buy the land. And then you're going to have to prepare the land, and then you're going to have to spray herbicide, and that takes like a helicopter or an airplane. And then you're going to have to plant the trees, and, and then you're going to have to fertilize them, and then you're going to wait for a really long time, like 12 to 15 years, and then you get your first little thinning. You might get a little payback on your investment, but not nearly enough to cover the upfront cost. Five years later, you'll have another thinning. You'll get a little more back on your investment. And then finally, after like 25 to 30 years, you get the big cut, right? That's the one that Carl really likes. You know, that's when you get the, the, the big saw logs and you get the big money. And so you finally get 
that return on your investment. In the mid-80s, like in, in where I grew up in Cass County, just south of the Sulphur River, uh, where, I, where we still live now and, and a lot of you guys live, uh, a lot of people began to invest in this. And so there were a lot of landowners that, that began to plant pine trees because these mills had moved in and they could get money for it. And so they began to invest in that and they would plant the trees. And then around 2010, 2011, those trees were ready for harvest. They were 25 to 30 years and they were finally ready to reap what they had sown so many years ago. But then on Labor Day weekend of that year, a fire broke out. It broke out in this area called Bear Creek uh, around Linden. And nobody knows what really caused the fire, just some spark. But the fire broke out, and, it, and, it, and they weren't able to contain it. It was really dry that year. A lot of you guys will remember this. And it burned for 51 days. And it burned 41,000 acres of timberland. And it was estimated that $1.6 billion in future timber revenue was lost in that fire alone. So all of that toil that had taken place for 30 years, planting those trees, taking care of those trees, all the upfront investment cost literally went up in smoke in 51 days. There's no insurance for this normally. How many of you know a story like that? I mean, we all have the story of someone who is just about to get to enjoy the fruits of their labor, and then something tragic happens in their life. Everybody's heard of the retiree who's like punched the clock for 40 years just so they would be able to free up their most valuable asset, which is time, right? That's our most valuable asset here on this earth. And they were going to be able to take their grandkids fishing, do all the things they wanted to do, and then all of a sudden they kill over from a heart attack a month after retiring. We, we've heard these stories. We know about these stories. This is the product of living in this fallen world that we live in. Um, for all of you, like, Gen Xers, you 90s kids, uh, you might have heard of, like, the Alanis Morissette song, Ironic, and she talks about this. And I'm not going to sing it, but I'm just going to, like, read a few lyrics. It says... An old man turned 98. He won the lottery and died the next day. It's a black fly in your Chardonnay. It's a death row pardon two minutes too late. It's like rain on your wedding day. It's a free ride when you've already paid. It's the good advice that you just didn't take. And who would have thought it figures? Mr. Play It Safe was afraid to fly. He packed his suitcase and kissed his kids goodbye. He waited his whole life to take that flight. And as the plane crashed down, he thought, well, isn't this nice? So I might get put in time out for, like, quoting Alanis Morissette in a sermon. I don't, she's probably not a believer. Um, but I think she does a good job of displaying what we all see. This is a universal human experience. We are not in control of our lives. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what the next breath will bring. All that we have, like all that we've worked for, could be taken away instantly. And as believers, we should know this better than anyone else because the Lord has revealed this to us in Scripture over and over again. We think of Job's words when he says, Naked I came into my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Even though we know this, even though we've been told this over and over again, the truth is, is that we often live our lives as if we know the plan or as if we can control it. But the truth is we don't know it and we can't control it. Solomon knew this well. He had witnessed this over and over again, and as we've studied Ecclesiastes, he's reminded us of the frailty of this life, that riches can be gained and lost, that health is not guaranteed. And as we kind of face these realities in this life, he's telling us that life at times can feel meaningless. And Solomon uh, felt this in his own life, and as he's looking back, he's concluding that all of life is vanity. It's this hevel, this vapor that's elusive and fleeting. It's not just Solomon who saw this. James wrote about this in his letter. In in chapter 4, he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So with all this of mind, when we kind of realize this and think about that and know that we're not in control, the question is, how should we live our lives? More importantly, how should we invest in this life? Not just our money, that's a part of it, but how should we invest our time and our resources? How should we invest our our lives in serving and growing God's kingdom? Because the danger is we look at all of this, we see these things going on around us. We see like the wildfire that destroys. We see the tornado that levels homes. We see the illnesses that come at the most unexpected times. The danger is that we look at that and we become paralyzed by fear. And we get so distraught we can't even function. It's like we we can't even get out of bed in the morning. There are people living their lives like that today. The danger is that we just exist and survive and not truly live life. But we know through Scripture, we know through God revealing it to us, that we are made for so much more than just existing and surviving. And we're going to see that here as we look at these six verses in Ecclesiastes 11. So how should we invest our lives in this fallen world? Let's take a look at the text and see what it says. So let's just start. I'm going to work a little backwards here, and I'm going to start in verse 5. Let's read that together. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes into the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So here in verse 5, we see the author of Ecclesiastes pointing out our ignorance to the ways of the Lord. God is the creator of everything. He's the king of the universe. He knows everything. And his ways are often mysterious to us. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33, says this, O the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? So we see here in verse 5 that the author is addressing this mystery. And he's using this analogy of the mystery of creation of human life in a mother's womb. And not just like the physical creation of life, 
But the more mysterious part is this like imputing of this spirit that distinguishes all of us humans from other creatures, from all other created beings. The fact that we as humans are made in God's image, that we have a soul, that we have a consciousness that allows us to create things, to build cities, to write symphonies, to live together, to communicate with each other. So we, we do understand a little bit about the science of the human body, the way, a, the way that a fetus is formed in the womb, but we can't really truly understand this like divine spark, this divine spark that makes us human and that makes us uniquely created in God's image. And since we don't truly understand the work of God, verse 2 tells us that we cannot and do not know what disasters may happen on earth. So how do we respond to that? Let's take a look at verse 1 and 2. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. So in response to all the uncertainty that we see in this life, in this world that we live in, we're not called to like play it safe. We're not being told here to go hide in a cave, to go hide away from the world, to go join like a mountain monastery. Here in verse 1, we're called to cast our bread upon the waters. What does that mean? You know, that's not like a phrase that we use in our culture today, not a a phrase we're real familiar with. And there's a few interpretations out there. So one interpretation is that Uh, he's talking about liberally giving of our resources, and I certainly think that's a part of it. We are called to liberally give of all that we have, our time, our money, uh, all that we have we're called to give. But the more accepted interpretation here is that he's talking about international maritime trade. It's literally sending bread and other goods out to sea to be sent to foreign lands so that that investment could be paid back. So Solomon was involved in this type of commerce. He would have become very wealthy from this. He was, he was very much an expert at this type of commerce. This is a time-consuming process. This was a slow process, especially in these days. It probably would have been at least a year or more before the ship returned with the goods, or returned with the money made from the goods. It would have been a year before the investment was paid. And so kind of like tree farming, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme. Verse 1 says, after many days your return will be realized. So here I think that we're seeing a call to be patient with our investments. And in verse 2, we're called to be wise with our investments. In verse 1, we're called to bold action. And in verse 2, we're called to be wise as we take that action. It says, give a portion to seven or even eight because as we've discussed, we don't know what disaster may come. In other words, don't send all your goods out on one ship going to one location. Maybe a storm comes up and sinks that ship and you lose everything. It's a call to be diversified, if you will. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. We've all heard that, and we've all been given that advice if we're, like, investing, right? Warren Buffett probably read this passage a long time ago. 
it's good investing advice, but it also, certainly we can use it for like personal finance and business practices, but I think there's deeper implications here for our lives. And so I think we're going to see that as we read on. Let's read verse 3 and 4. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So in verse 3 here, the author's kind of pointing out this uncontrollable nature uh, to the world that we live in. A tree falls where it will. When, when the rains fill up, with, when the clouds fill up with rain, it's going to rain, right? There's nothing we can do about it. It is what it is. We can't control it. Verse 4 kind of deals with this problem of over-analysis. He talks about observing the wind and not sowing and regarding the clouds and not reaping. I'm sure most of you have heard the phrase like paralysis by analysis, and that's what he's talking about here. Now, it is wise for like the farmer to look at the forecast, right, before you sow seed or before you reap the harvest. I mean, that's wise to do. It's wise to look at market data and economic forecasts before you make an investment or start a new business. It's wise to kind of look at all angles and seek advice before you make major life decisions. And so we should consider the risk when we're living life, right? We're going to consider the risk if we're going to travel to a foreign country on a mission trip. But we cannot possibly account for and we cannot possibly safeguard against all the factors that can pop up in this life. It's impossible. We cannot eliminate risk from this life. And here's the thing, you can't eliminate the risk that you might be making the wrong decision. And if we try to do that, we're going to be paralyzed. We will never move. We will never take action. We will sit still paralyzed by fear. So I just kind of want to use an example to help bring this point home, but I need just a little participation uh, from you guys. So who here, just raise your hand if you've heard of Ulysses S. Grant. Okay, some of you need to go to history class. Um, but anyway, Ulysses S. Grant, he was a president. He was the, the, the general who kind of won the war for the Union. Okay, so raise your hand if you've ever heard of George B. McClellan. There's a few. There's a few history buffs. Anyway, so a lot fewer people have heard of him because he was actually the first general of the Union Army. But he was this, like, great military strategist. He had this great military mind. He was a West Point graduate. He distinguished himself in, like, earlier military conflicts, and Lincoln picked him to lead the Union. So it was kind of his war to win. He would be the one that that would, would have been president, like Grant, and been written down in the history books. But he overanalyzed everything. And, and he was afraid to attack. He was afraid to go through with the military strategy because all he could think about is what would go wrong. And so Lincoln eventually saw this and removed him, and he brought, eventually brought Grant in, who understood risk. He understood risk was a part of it. And so Grant brought an end to the war. He was much more aggressive. 
and the union was preserved. So risk is a part of this life, and the Lord calls on us to take it on as we seek to build the kingdom. Taking on risk is a part of being an obedient believer. So let's just talk a little bit about what's, what's the enemy of action. If we're called to action, but we don't act, what's the enemy to action? What keeps us from acting? I want us to think about like the parable of the talents. So we think about this parable that Jesus told to his disciples. There's this story that Jesus tells, and, and uh, he talks about this master who's leaving town. And the master has three servants that he gives these talents to. Now, a talent is like a monetary value. So a talent was like a, basically a monetary measurement, and it was a big measurement. So it equaled what's equivalent to $600,000 in today's money. So this was a big amount of money he was giving these guys to care for. And so two of these servants traded their talents, and they basically doubled their investment. And then there was the third servant. And what did he do? He hid the talent away. It was basically like the equivalent of stuffing your money underneath the mattress. So when the master comes back, he's He's very pleased with the first two servants. They've doubled their investment. They took a risk, and he gives, he gives them praise, and he gives them greater responsibility in his kingdom. But when the third servant came to the master and told him what he has done, the, the master was angry, right? He was upset with him. He called him wicked and slothful, and he cast him out into the darkness. And at first glance, it seems kind of harsh, you know, when you read it. But do you remember the excuse that, like, the servant gave for burying the talent? He said this to the master. He said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent into the ground. Do you see that? Like, he was afraid. It was fear that drove him away from relationship with the master. Fear is the enemy of action. So what are we called to do in the face of fear? We're called to overcome it, right? We're called to act. If we look at verse 6 here, In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. We are called to sow our seed. We're called to work hard from morning to tonight to be people of wise and bold action. Notice verse 6 doesn't say anything about guaranteeing success, right? It says we are called to, to action even if we don't know what will prosper. We, we, won't, we don't know if it's going to prosper or not before we take action. There are no guarantees. So kind of as we just finish all this up, this morning, I just want to bring a few things together and talk about some key takeaways I think we can see from this passage. First takeaway that we see here in verse 1 and in verse 6 is that we're called to action, right? We're called to cast our bread. We're called to sow our seed. We've been called to action for the kingdom. We must be willing to boldly risk wisely in this life. We can't separate risk from life. 
and we must be bold as we seek to serve the Lord. So maybe that's like moving on a business idea you've had for some time. Maybe that's finally answering the call to go into the mission field. Maybe that's answering the call to go into a different area of ministry. Maybe that's inviting your unbelieving neighbor to dinner so that you can form a relationship with them and eventually share the gospel. Maybe it's being more intentional in your home with your family about sharing God's word and leading them well. I think a second takeaway for us as we do this, as we leap into action, as we sow our seeds, is that we have to remember to be patient. Kingdom work like tree farming and international trade, again, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It often takes years to see fruit. And this is true for the pastor leading a congregation. It's true for a business owner leading a team. It's true for a stay-at-home mom who's just struggling because she's teaching and disciplining, and it seems like all of her words are going on deaf ears. Scripture would tell us, this passage would tell us, to hang on, to keep sowing seed because the harvest takes time. I came across a story when I was uh, preparing for this this week, and it, it was about the conversion of a man named Luke Short. So he came to Christ at 103 years old. He was like, I think he lived in Virginia, and the story goes that he was sitting underneath a tree, and just out of nowhere, basically, he remembered a sermon from many years ago. And that sermon that was preached, he recalled it, and he saw that he was a sinner, and he, he cried out to the Lord for forgiveness, and he was saved. He ended up living three more years. He lived to be 106 years old. And when he died, these words were inscribed on his tombstone. It's, uh, it said this, it said, Here lies a babe of grace, aged three years, who died according to nature at 106. The really remarkable part of this story is not that he came to Christ at 103, which, of course, is remarkable when anyone comes to Christ. But what's remarkable is that sermon that he remembered had been preached 85 years before his conversion. That preacher was long dead. But it was 85 years for that seed to be, for the harvest to be reaped. So be patient. Don't be discouraged. We're called to continue to sow even when we don't see immediate results. So the last takeaway here this morning that I want us to see is that we see that we need to be sowing seed. We need to see that we need to be taking action in this life. But the only possible way to do that is for us to be able to overcome our fears. You know, fear is a normal and healthy part of the human existence. Without fear, we'd probably all be dead by now. Uh, you've probably all been around someone who doesn't have much of a fear factor, and they're dangerous. I mean, they're, they're kind of wild. They're hard to be around sometimes. Um, so fear is good for us. And in fact, Scripture tells us that fear is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? So it's protective for us in many ways. But if it's not put in its proper context... It can rule us. It can ruin our lives. 
it can make us make us take no action, right? So what's the answer to overcoming fear? I mean, the answer to overcoming fear is is faith. That's what Scripture tells us. It's knowing that you that if you are a child of God, that if you've placed your faith in Christ, that eternity is already secure for you. That you're not earning Christ's favor. That you don't have to get it all right to be right with him. It's Christ that lived the perfect life. It's Christ who made all the right decisions. It's Christ who did not fail. And we can know that the Lord is for our ultimate good. It's knowing that deep within your soul, even as you face scary things. We know that the king of the universe is with us and for us. And his love for us doesn't depend on our performance. That should be freeing to us. And his spirit resides in us. That means that we can overcome fear. It means that even if we make wrong decisions, even if things go wrong, that it ultimately will be redeemed in the end. Listen to the words of Isaiah 43 where the Lord says this. He says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So if you're here and you've placed your faith in Christ, this promise is for you, that the Lord will be with you no matter what you go through, no matter what fearful thing you face in this life, that he's calling you to action, he's calling you to overcome those fears. If you do not know Christ, this promise is not for you. And you should be scared. You should be scared of meeting the God of the universe. And so the promise is that that the Lord is ready to accept you, that he, he is ready to forgive you of your sins. And so I just call on you to do that. And if you're not sure how to do that, I'm happy to talk to you. Jared is, there's Ryan, there's other people in this church who would love to talk to you about that. And we can just ultimately see that, that we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by making the right decision. We're not saved by taking the right action. We're saved by his grace, love, and mercy. So let's just pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you've given us your promise that you can that you will be with us through scary things. Lord, we see that you've called us to bold action. Help us to be people who invest our lives well in this world, who honor you with the way we live our lives, who overcome fear through your spirit residing in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So each week at Christ Community Church, if you just stand with me, we take communion together. It's a way for us to remember what the Lord has done for us.